This morning we're looking at the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, and this is our New Testament reading. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. We pray that it would find its way into our hearts into our minds, into our affections, into our desires, that we would learn as we worship you, that we would learn to have our desires placed and situated in you alone. Father, many of us are here with great hurts, with great scars, maybe inflicted by a past experience in a church, and we're wondering what in the world we're doing here again this morning. Some mothers are bringing great amounts of skepticism and doubt and maybe cynicism And we're wondering if any of this could possibly be true. And if it is, maybe it's a little scary. And others are here, and we believe this, but we have trouble seeing how it lays out in our lives, how it lands in our daily application of life. And Father, I pray that wherever we're coming from this morning, that you would meet us, that you would walk towards us, that you would embrace us where we are, but don't leave us where we are, change us. Mold us. Make us new from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've seen the movie uh, Amadeus back in the early 80s. It won F. Murray Abraham uh, an Oscar, and then he went along to star and set with such film luminaries as Ice-T. It was a, a great start to a career that didn't go very far after there, but he was wonderful in Amadeus, and he... There's one scene in this movie where the composer, Antonio Salieri, as a boy, kneels before a crucifix, and he tries to make a bargain with God. 
He says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. What will God get for doing him the favor? In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Seems a little brash and over the top, and who makes deals with God like this? But this is a pretty familiar thing if we think about it. And this is how people are portrayed as they're going down in flames in an airplane on a movie. It's all of a sudden they make a deal with God. If you do this, then I will do that for you. He was offering God a deal. I'll sacrifice for you, and in return, you'll fulfill my desire for personal glory. And Salieri, like many of us, was dealing with God as if he's a negotiator. We propose to do something. We give up this. We give our life to him. And in return, we expect God to do something. Now, Ephesians paints quite a different picture of how God, who God is and how he deals with his people. We're going to look just at three things. The disturbance of grace, the depth of grace, and the demands of of grace. So let's look at the disturbance, how God disturbs us, if that may be our conception of how we relate to God. This is the the longest sentence in the New Testament. What takes six sentences in English is one long sentence in the Greek. It's like it's exploding out of Paul's pen. He's over the moon about what is going on as he looks at who God is and what God has done for him and the Ephesian church. He can't get it out fast enough almost, and so his language is somewhat disjointed. What goes with what? What modifies what? And there's lots of words that are a bit scary, maybe a bit alarming to you. Maybe you picked up on one of them, and then the the next verse you didn't even remember because predestination, what in the world does that mean? We're going to deal with that in a moment, but let me frame it a bit differently. Let me frame these words like chosen and election and predestination for you. This letter is what's known as a circular letter, most likely, that it was written to a specific church, specific people, read in Ephesus, but then it was passed on to another church to be read in their public worship services, but it's also traditionally considered a prison letter. And that signifies that this is where Paul was writing from, that he was in chains, that he was in prison writing this letter. He's locked up, and yet he's ecstatic. He's over the moon with delight, even when circumstances personally would call for anything but enthusiasm. That's the context for these difficult words. Paul is delighted He can't believe that he's been let in on this mystery of how beautiful and wonderful God is. So the way that any of us would normally respond to these circumstances, being locked up, being in prison, has been disturbed by God's grace. There's delight, there's joy, there's humility. We see the disturbance of grace as it kind of brackets this passage. If you look at verse 3 and then verse 13. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in 13, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What we see, if that's the bracket of this passage, what we see is that we're not dealing with just a new spirituality. We're not dealing with just a new methodology of how to approach God. We're not dealing with an impersonal force. God has actually come among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And becoming a a Christian then is not just adopting a new belief system. It's not just adopting a new methodology for spirituality, but you are included in Christ, that you are brought into the very life of God if you're in Him. Now let's think for a moment, because this is challenging for us, but who is this written to? What was the culture around Ephesus that would have received this? Well, you would have had monotheistic Jews that had either been converted to Christianity or were still wrestling with this new thing called Christianity. And you'd have also the pagan Greeks, largely polytheistic. Now, this message, this truth would have been radical to them. It would have been difficult for them to get their heads around it. The monotheistic Jews, one of the foundational verses for them was Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They knew God as a Father. He rules from heaven. He is one. And yet here comes this rabbi from the middle of nowhere who believes that and yet at the same time says, I and he are one. That he claims this rabbi to be the very person of God. He walks and talks with his disciples. He heals them. He offers them forgiveness. That God has come down, not in smoke and fire, but he's come down in a person, in the gentle person of Jesus Christ. A son, a rabbi, who doesn't simply perform the sacrifices, but he claims to be the sacrifice, to be everything that the Old Testament pointed to. In one sense, it's the logical extension that the Messiah would come offering forgiveness. It's a logical extension of what these monotheistic Jews would have believed, but what they had to wrestle with, what Paul had to wrestle with, was now it also at the same time challenges them at their very core, very core understanding of who God is, is challenged. They have to deal with them. Now, what about polytheistic pagans? Jesus is saying he's not simply a God, not simply the Son of God like Artemis or Apollo. He's not God among many, but he's saying, I am the God. And in the pagan stories about God in those days, there were, they were deities that were not to be disturbed. In fact, do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the flood narrative of the Bible where there, was these, there were many flood narratives circulating around the ancient Near East that predated the, the Noahic flood story? But what do they deal with? The flood is in a response to the people being too noisy, that they have disturbed the gods, and so therefore the gods or God has sent a flood because they've disturbed his peace. But here, he's not responding to disturbance. He's causing it. He's disturbing everyone's presuppositions of what God is like. It's a disturbance of grace. And Jesus requires all of us to rethink our experience, our idea, our presuppositions of God. And when Paul does this, he's ecstatic. He delights. 
he can't believe it because God is with these people and he's with them with love. He's with them with grace. He's with them with mercy. He approaches them, Jesus does, with the disturbance of grace, a rescuing, redeeming, saving God who doesn't throw down lightning bolts, who doesn't mount a war horse, but he mounts a cross in love. Marsha Linehan is a a professor and a therapist at the University of Washington, just up in Seattle. And she is the creator of a treatment that's used worldwide to deal with people on uh, the verge of suicide, severely suicidal people. Now she practices, she's a clinical therapist, and so she meets with people and meets with uh, many people who are on the verge of suicide. But the story of Marsha Linehan is that she herself was suicidal for many years. She dealt in self-mutilation and self-hatred and was almost on the, ready to kill herself many times. And one of her patients came to her, and as they are want to do, they noticed the, the faded burns and the cuts and the welts on uh, Marsha's arms. And like many patients before this one, they wanted to know her story. They wanted to hear her background. But this patient was different. Her question was a little bit different. It wasn't just, tell me that, tell me your story. Is it true that you've suffered? Because with those questions, Marcia has always had a ready answer. It's the one she always used to cut the questions short. You mean, have I suffered? You want me to tell you, have I suffered? And this person says, no, Marcia. I'm not asking simply if you've suffered. I mean, are you one of us? Are you like us? Because if you were, it would give all of us so much hope. Friends, that's what Jesus claims to be, is God and yet one of us. And the scars are not self-inflicted from self-mutilation, but they're the scars of our past. They're the scars of our sin. They're the scars of our flaws and our brokenness. And that's what he carries around. But he's one of us. He's like us. And so there's reason to hope. There's the disturbance of grace and then the depth of grace. How deep does this grace run? Verse 3, Praise or blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Again, Paul is just writing at a fast pace and he throws these three words that are all the word that we translate as blessing. And blessing has become sort of tribal language in the church. In the, in the South, where I grew up, you can say just about anything you want about someone if you say, well, bless their heart. He's a racist and he dresses funny, but bless his heart. You can spiritualize any sort of negativity you want. But what is blessing as Paul uses it? Blessing is life in its fullness, life in all of its flourishing. It's life made right. And when you're saying to praise God or bless God, it's recognizing, it's worshiping Him for being the source of everything that is good and everything that is full. But then in turn, God is saying that He has blessed you that He has blessed His people in the heavenly places, that all of the spiritual resources of God for you to flourish that are present in in the heavenly places are present in your life because you are in Christ. 
that all of the resources that are given to flourishing life is being leveraged for you if you are in Jesus. And what does Jesus say about being joined to you? Jesus says, I have come so that they might have life and have it to the full. I've come, Jesus says, to bring you blessing, to bring you flourishing, to bring you fullness. And then Paul goes on, verses 4 and 5. It says that if you're in Christ, you were chosen, that you, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you were destined for adoption. Now these are those edgy, alarming words. But don't overthink this. Lots of people have overthought this passage as telling us kind of who's in and who's out. But this is how people talk to each other who are in love with one another. God is telling them, the church at Ephesus, and telling you, or if you're a Christian, your story. God is reminding them of their story. It's like if you're on an anniversary date with your spouse, and you look over at this person that you love, and you say, do you remember when we first met? Do you remember our first date? Let's talk about that. He's speaking very personally. He's not solving theological riddles. He's writing a love letter. We all have this experience of not being chosen. We all have the experience of being on the playground and being the very last one to be chosen, which may be worse than being cho- not being chosen at all. We have the experience of not making the homecoming court, not making the baseball team, barely getting in. And not being chosen carries this message that we're not worthy, that we're unloved, that we're not useful. And most of us don't take this line down. We do something about it. We insist on being noticed. We find a tribe that will accept us, and we make a deal. For this acceptance, we'll be good members. We'll adopt the style, we'll adopt the outlook, the dress code, the vocabulary, and now we're chosen. But not really. Because what we've done is we've conformed in order to be allowed in. We haven't been chosen, we've been allowed in. Or we take the opposite approach. In demanding to be noticed, we take on the role of a bully. We break the rules, we flout convention, we use power over other people, we become a jerk so that we'll be noticed. We're compensating for this inner emptiness that says we're not worthy that we haven't been chosen, that we haven't been delighted in, and I'm going to make you notice me. I'm going to make you look at me. And against this background, which is a human condition, so it existed in Ephesus just as it existed in town, against this background of all of us wanting to be noticed, not be ignored, Paul is telling you that you are blessed, that you were destined to receive His love, that His grace has been lavished upon you, that you were chosen in Him. Not as compensation, not because He felt sorry for us, not because He looked down the the corridors of time and saw all the good that you were going to do, and so He just had to have you. No, before time began, before the foundation of the world, Jesus loved you so much that He determined to lay down His life on your behalf. 
In Christ, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness according to the riches of His grace. There's lots of important words there, but there's one that might strike you as slightly odd. Blood. Unless you're a big fan of the Twilight series, it's kind of weird. It's kind of creepy. What is all this blood language? But Paul, as he mentions blood, he's ecstatic. He can't wait to share this with the church at Ephesus. When Paul says that you have redemption through Christ's blood, he's saying that you and I have a problem that won't be solved with a little incense. It won't be solved with some incantations. It won't be solved with a quiet time. There's a problem that each of us have that is far too big for any of those things. That they may be aids, but they're not the crux. The crux is that You are a person that despite all of your flaws, all of your scars, all of the ways that you have been wronged and have wronged other people, all the ways that you've been ignored and overlooked, that God doesn't declare His love for you in the abstract. It's not a theological abstraction. But what God does is that for someone whom in all of your beauty and ugliness chose to value so highly that He would be willing to die for you. That's what this blood remark is talking about. Blood is representative of life itself. You can't live without blood. And in the military, if you're in a conflict zone, often you'll write your blood type somewhere prominent on your body or on your uniform because if you get injured, if you get shot, you need what? You need blood. You need a transfusion. And not just any blood. You need the right kind of blood. The people who provide that blood sacrifice some time and a little pain in order to provide that life-saving fluid for you. But here, in this passage, the God who has every right to demand your life gives up His instead so that you can have the life-saving blood that you need. And it's just your type. It's just your type because it's deep and it's eternal and it never runs out, and it makes you completely clean. It deals with all of your flaws, all of your shortcomings, all of your scars, not just some of them. It doesn't just fix you in time and then say, get with the program. It says, for all time, you will be made clean. You will be made new. The disturbance of death, the disturbance of grace, the depth of grace, and finally, the demands of grace. What do I mean by that? The demands of grace? Isn't that an oxymoron? Well, verse 12. He's given us all of these blessings that are yours and mine if we are in Jesus. You've been blessed. You've been chosen. You've been destined. You've been lavished with grace. For what? So that we who have already hoped in Christ might live to the praise of His glory. Much of our educational system in the U.S. really majors on facts and figures and dates and definitions and how things work and typologies. And Christian education has much, in many ways, followed suit. That we are here to learn the facts. And what's important to you as a Christian is what you know. It's what you agree with. And so we major in many places in the church on the cognitive, on filling our head with facts and figures and beliefs. And many churches, therefore, become just delivery systems for systems of doctrine. When I was in high school, I loved history. I loved reading about history. 
But there was a difference in what I was reading in the books that seemed to paint these incredibly beautiful pictures of how history worked together and the connections and the significance and what I experienced in the classroom, which was just know this and memorize this and be able to reproduce this on the test. It was all about facts and figures and what you, what you knew. And I could make an A just because I could, I could memorize things. In college, I finally got to this place where history came alive. I began to see, and as a Christian, began to interpret it as all of the ways that, that God had worked through human history. All of the significance of why these things happened, not just what happened and when happened and who did it, but why. What's the significance and what's the meaning for us today? Paul never just lays out abstract doctrinal facts. He never just gives you a list of things that you're to put in your head. He never just tells you interesting, curious things. He says, let me tell you about God, about His love for you, so that so that you may live, so that you may have life to the full, so that you may live to the praise of His glory. Okay, so that means I've got to get my life together. I've got to live a worthy life so that people will look at me and give praise to God. That's what Paul's getting at, right? Not so fast. Who's the actor in all of these verses? Who is the prime mover? It's God. Living to the praise of God's glory is not doing more, doing better. It's simply resting fully in His grace. It's receiving the life that He wants to give you. We think that all NFL players have it made for the most, most part. There's been a lot that have come out with concussion and how they go broke afterwards. But we just reason that those NFL players that are on TV are doing pretty well. They've got it made. They're getting, getting paid, whether they're playing or whether they're riding the bench on Sunday. They're doing okay. But surprisingly, the biggest thing on most rookies' minds as they come to training camp before the season is whether he will make the team or not. Rookies know that the team roster begins with 80 players who come to camp. It's a lot. And after a few weeks, the coaches start cutting it down. They cut it to 65 players. And then before the, the season actually begins, all NFL teams have to trim their roster down to 53 players. So of the 20 or so rookies that come into camp on day one, only six or seven actually make the team, actually get paid throughout the year. Lovey Smith, who's coach of the Chicago Bears, knows this very well. And so he tells his rookies on the first day of camp, make sure that you make me put you on the team. Make us as coaches have to put you on the team. In other words, play so well in practice that the coaches can't imagine the Chicago Bears existing without you. Work so hard, make hard enough tackles, be so consistent that the coaches have to put you on the team. Let your performance make the decision for us. And most religions, most of us, even if we're Christian, fall back into that pattern that we think that God makes the same sort of speech to us about who will get into heaven. Do you want to make the team? Do you want to have eternal life? Well, make me put you on the team. Live such a good life, do so many good deeds that I couldn't imagine rejecting you. Take the decision out of my hands by being good enough, by wearing enough merit badges, 
by knowing enough doctrine. Take the decision out of my hands. But the counterintuitive truth, the disturbance of grace, is that God works in a completely different way than these football coaches do. People who think they can perform well enough to be noticed. It works if you're trying out for a football team. It doesn't work if you're trying on Christianity. The demands of grace are that you stay. The demands of grace are that you rest. That you take off all of your merit badges. That you stop looking at yourself. That you stop looking at your feet while you're dancing. And you just allow yourself to be loved. You allow yourself to be chosen. You allow God's love that was initiated before time began to wash over you over and over until it changes you. Grace humiliates all of our attempts at private virtue. All of our attempts to try to get God to do what we want. Grace humiliates all of our negotiation with God because it takes it away and says it's valueless in terms of how I look at you, how I see you. If we've really taken hold, if we really understand the disturbance of grace, we'll feel powerless. Where before we thought, if I do this, then God will do that, we'll feel absolutely powerless. And who wants that? Who wants to feel powerless? Who wants to be humiliated? Who wants grace? Only sinners. Only those who are tired of trying to measure up. Only those who are demoralized enough by their own failures that they're ready to demand of God to say, disturb my ecosystem. Give me grace and give it to me for free. That's the demand that we make of God. That's actually the demand of grace, is that there's no other way. That we go to God and we say, I demand of you, God, give me Jesus and only Jesus. Give me grace. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take hold of grace. It's not something that, that we want. It seems so appealing and right in many respects that we could be made right with you apart from anything we do, good or evil. And yet at the very same time, we resist it because it humiliates us. It takes power out of our hands. It's not what we want. And we will go just as quickly out of this church this morning as we came in denying that this is true while saying it is. Father, help us to live by how we think and how we believe and what Paul has just told us this morning. Help us to live in accordance with your grace and come to know it more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.